0: Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. I'm Greg Sesek from the Programs Department. Our September October edition of Compass, the library newsletter, is in the back. If you don't receive it and would like to, there's a sign up sheet uh, either to mail it or to email it to you, or both if you like. Or you can sign up at the Pratt website, prattlibrary.org. We're happy to have Todd Brewster here tonight. He has written extensively on constitutional issues and is the director of the National Constitution Center's Peter Jennings Project for Journalists and the Constitution. Brewer served as senior editorial producer for ABC News and co-authored three books with the late Peter Jennings. He has written for Vanity Fair, Time, The New York Times, and Life where he was the senior editor from 1988 to 1992. A native of Indianapolis, Indiana, he was inducted into the Indiana Journalism Hall of Fame in 2000. From 2008 to 2013, Todd Brewster was the Don E. Ackerman Director of Oral History at West Point. He was also Director of the United States Military Academy's West Point Center for Oral History, his latest book, which he's here to talk about tonight, Lincoln's Gamble, was published by Scribner. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. I'm
1: delighted to be here with all you uh, Lincoln fans. Um, it's uh, it's quite a daunting thing to write a book about Lincoln because everyone says to you, "What else is there to be said about Lincoln?" Um, the UPS man, for instance, came up to me and said, "You know, I' delivering a book to my my house." He said, "You know, uh, um, to write a book like that, you sort of have to rewrite what everybody else said, right? I mean, you can't change the story. He doesn't survive the assassination in your book, does he?" And uh, I looked at him and I said, "Okay, well, uh, no, he doesn't." Um, you know, there's there's um, the book that I wrote. Um, is about the six months from when Abraham Lincoln first mentions the Emancipation Proclamation on a carriage ride to the funeral of an infant, the infant son of Secretary of War James, uh, um, Edwin Stanton, the boy's name was James Stanton, um, riding along with Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells and Secretary Seward Uh, He casually mentions it during the carriage ride as they're rolling through the streets of Georgetown on their way to a cemetery where little James Stanton, an infant son of Secretary of War Stanton, is about to be buried. They're the same streets that he has traveled uh, not that long ago for the burial of his own son, uh, Willie, who also died of typhoid, just like James Stanton did um, in February of 1862, so very, it's a familiar scene for Lincoln. He has some resonance with his own life as he's riding on his way there. And it's then that he interrupts the scene to tell um, Stan, uh, tell Seward and uh, Wells that he's decided that he's going to free the slaves. Um, he tells them also that he's not doesn't want to be talked out of it, doesn't want their opinion about it, doesn't want to be... Uh, any kind of advice. He just wants them to know that this is what he's going to do. And it begins a six-month period from then till January 1, 1863 when Lincoln goes through tremendous uh, turmoil over his personal life, his spiritual life, his political life. Um, He has a constitutional crisis over the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, He has uh, a dedication to emancipation, then withdraws it, issues the proclamation again, and then withdraws it, and finally signs it on January one, 1863. To me, this was a hinge moment you 'll see in the book lincoln's Gamble that he he goes from feeling as though he can control the outcomes of things by virtue of reason to feeling that no he can 't, and he is the victim of fate um, He goes from believing in emancipation as an act with moral purpose to fear over what it will mean for the war and for a future of a biracial America. It is a time when you look at Lincoln and you believe that he's, um, on the one hand, dedicated to the convictions and the purpose that we always associate with Lincoln, a a great man of history, and then you see him doing things that are so inconsistent with it, so inconsistent with his reputation as a larger-than-life man, and so inconsistent with this role he plays in our own American history that you come away feeling as though you've seen a very different person than you've ever encountered in the histories of Lincoln that have been written before. I want to read you from the introduction first, and then I want to lay out the, the, the arc of the book so you can see what it is I've tried to do here. And I hope I can encourage you to, th- show, to find the story as interesting as I do. The introduction is called A Man Imperfect. The inspiration for this book comes from a short passage in the writings of W.E.B. Du Bois, the African-American intellectual who co-founded the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People in 1909 and whose work on behalf of racial equality set in motion civil rights crusades of the 20th century. What Du Bois wrote about the tw- about the 16th president is worth reexamination. Abraham Lincoln was a southern poor white of illegitimate birth, poorly educated, unusually ugly, awkward, and ill-dressed, Du Bois claimed in a 1922 article in this NAACP magazine Crisis. He liked smutty stories, was a politician down to his toes, The judgment at first seems unduly harsh, even Du Bois' own faithful readers apparently greeted it with considerable outrage. And as a summary of a life of such commanding importance, it also appears a little beside the point. On a couple of his observations, Du Bois' description of Lincoln is also simply incorrect. The first president born in a state outside of the 13 original colonies, Kentucky, Lincoln grew up in Indiana and settled in Illinois, which at the time formed the western edge of the country. He may have been southern in sensibility, carrying many of the same racial prejudices as those against whom he would later war, but he was western in spirit, in his willingness to broach the new and the untried, to question old traditions and to start over. The reference to illegitimacy is suspect as well. It comes from an almost certainly erroneous and yet often repeated story that Lincoln's father was not the struggling Tom Lincoln, as maintained by most all biographers, but Abraham Enlow, a wealthy North Carolina landowner, who in a story that began to be whispered as early as 1865, entered into an extramarital affair with a family servant girl, Nancy Hanks. When she became pregnant by him and gave him a son, whom she named Abraham, presumably after his father, Enloe schemed to shield himself from the shame by sending Hanks off to Kentucky, where she eventually married Tom Lincoln, providing young Abraham with a last name. Though a photograph of young Wesley Enloe, Abraham Enloe's acknowledged son, did carry an uncanny resemblance to a young Abraham Lincoln, no concrete evidence supported the story. Still, the tale persisted and does to the present day, as a Google search will demonstrate. It was helped along by William Herndon, Lincoln's law partner, who in his 1889 three-volume biography repeated the story in part to reinforce his belief that Lincoln rose from the lowest depths of any of our great men, climbing, and here are his words, from a stagnant putrid pool like the gas which set on fire by its own energy and self-combustible nature rises in jets, blazing, clear, and bright. The story of Enloe and others questioning the Lincoln's paternity even inspired a 1920 book, The Paternity of Abraham Lincoln, with the unfortunate subtitle, An Essay on the Chastity of Nancy Hanks. <laughs> there, the author refutes the claim that Lincoln was fathered by the legendary South Carolina Senator John C. Calhoun, by the adopted son of Chief Justice John Marshall, by Enlow, or anyone else other than Thomas Lincoln. Still, Du Bois was right on almost everything else. Abe Lincoln was indeed fond of the bawdy tale. He was also ungainly, homely, self-educated, the product of a dirt-poor upbringing, almost always disheveled in appearance, and possessed of a gift for politics, though if indeed it reached down to his toes, as Du Bois claimed, a reference that seemed to deny Lincoln any instinct but the political, it was still not enough to prevent the country from collapsing into its bloodiest war, a civil war, almost from the moment that Lincoln was elected, on November 6, 1860. No matter. For Du Bois, all of this was mere preamble anyway. The world is full of illegitimate children, he continued. The world is full of folk whose taste was educated in the gutter. The world is full of people born hating and despising their fellows. To these, I love to say, see this man. He was one of you, and yet he became Abraham Lincoln. He became Abraham Lincoln. It is an appealing, though even for Du Bois' time, unoriginal thought. Through the decades, many have adopted the idea that Lincoln's most important gift was that he was educable, that he, like other underestimated political figures, grew to his greatness while in office, that events and Lincoln's response to those events conspired to make Lincoln Lincoln, that he listened and watched and studied his way to greatness, often with the help of those around him. In 1864, he spoke with humility of no claim to have controlled events, but rather that events have controlled me and the abolitionist Wendell Phillips once proclaimed that if Lincoln could be said to have grown in office, it is because we have watered him. Still, the old rail splitter is often credited, perhaps erroneously, with saying that by age 40, a man is responsible for his own face. I, I love that quote. A milestone he reached in 1849, 12 years before he reached the presidency, and one could also claim that Lincoln grew to greatness through a steady climb to the office beginning in 1838 with his speech before the Young Men's Lyceum of Springfield, Illinois, when, a mere 28 years old, he warned with prescience that the greatest threat to the American nation was not some powerful invading country, no Bonaparte, Alexander, no Caesar, but the threat from within. If destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher, he told his audience. Responding in part to mob violence that had led to a lynching in St. Louis, Missouri, and another murder in nearby Albion, Illinois. As a nation of freemen, we must live through all time or die by suicide. Of Lincoln, one could certainly say that he grew after the office, after his death, as we came to appreciate a new contour to the American idea, one birthed by him, and as a kind of shimmering mysticism began to attend his memory a vision of Lincoln as the American Christ figure killed on Easter weekend, he was assassinated on Good Friday, for the sin of granting freedom to the oppressed, a God-man, not a man-man, flawless, porcelain, divinely touched, someone to be more worshipped than understood. Among those who had suffered through the Civil War, much of the latter half of the 19th century was spent in an effort to wring meaning from their suffering. They had witnessed so much loss, so much destruction, they now needed to make meaning of it, lest the 600-some thousand dead soldiers and an uncounted number of civilians be seen as having perished in vain. As early as July 1862, Lincoln, recognizing that this was no ordinary American war, most importantly because it involved Americans killing Americans, pushed Congress to pass legislation creating the first national resting places, for those who had died in service to their country. In the years following the end of the war, tens of thousands of bodies, most of them lacking any identification, were removed from their primitive battlefield graves to be brought to these new national cemeteries where their deaths could be given recognition. Union soldiers' bodies, that is, the corpses of Confederate soldiers were left to the work of small bands of Southern women who worked together to recover what they could. It wasn't so much the war that created the Union, it was death from that war and the need to come to terms with it. But Lincoln's death was the big one. If his violent end could be rendered meaningful, if it could be said that he died for some transcendent purpose, then those who'd perished in the struggle over which he presided would follow his heavenly path. So the lesson was passed on to the next generation, the after-war generation. Lincoln was not simply to be saluted for his service, he was to be sanctified. By his blood, he had reconciled us. Through his pain, we had been healed. By 1909, on the centenary of Lincoln's birth, the apotheosis was complete. More than 22 counties and 35 cities had been named for Lincoln. There had also been failed proposals to christen new states, what became Wyoming and the Dakotas, with his name. It almost didn't matter so much of what had happened since the end of the war had, had undone the promise of equality, such as it was, a promise distinct, as we will see in this book, from the promise to end slavery. That the Jim Crow era had put a stain on Lincoln's legacy, that much of what had been gained had been given back. Lincoln had injected the question of equality into the American consciousness as something central to our national identity as a core element of the American conversation. In the same year, 1922, that Du Bois wrote the passage above that I read, the Lincoln Memorial was dedicated, a Hellenic temple containing a statue of the seated president that measured 19 feet from bottom to top and all of it on an 11-foot pedestal. If this Lincoln were standing, he would rise to 28 feet tall. At the dedication, the poet Edward Markham reprised his 1,900 verse, including the now oft-quoted verse Wolf quoted a line, the grip that swung the axe in Illinois was on the pen that set a people free. This hagiographic episode continued with Lincoln books on every conceivable aspect of his life and career, many of them setting out Parson Weems style to create the Lincoln legend, Honest Abe, Abe the Redeemer, Lincoln, man of the people, master of men, and of course the great emancipator. Thankfully, the trend long ago abated. A tempering of the Lincoln myth occurred in the post-World War II era with some authors going so far in the other direction, laying him out to be racist, incompetent, devious, and certainly no subject for national reverence. Still, the cascade of books of Lincoln volumes has continued unabated, and a glance through the entire list shows just how inventive the researching mind can be. In addition to traditional biographies and histories, there is the life of Abraham Lincoln for young people told in words of one syllable, the personal finances of Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln on the coming of the caterpillar tractor, and first published only a decade ago, the physical Lincoln, including the following chapters, lips, gut, skull, muscles, skin, eyes, height, and joints. According to WorldCat, the global online library catalog, 23,274 books and updated and new versions of books have been written about Lincoln. So how original am I? As I stand before you, I read from the 23,275th. But neither growth nor myth nor the overzealous debunking of myth, is enough to understand Lincoln, and Du Bois alone, it seems, recognized this nearly a hundred years ago. For his short passage continues with his arguing that Lincoln became Lincoln not by denying or even transcending the impurities of his past, but by holding on to them, embracing them, his virtues coexisting with his failings, his achievements coming both because of what he believed and in spite of what he believed. We all would like to think that a man's education and experience forms a progressive line. The more he learns, the better he is. This is only natural, said Du Bois, a desire to whitewash our heroes to remember only the fine and the brave and the good about those we revere and to whom we look for guidance. We yearn in our imperfection towards perfection. Sinful, we envisage righteousness. But life is rarely so cleanly lived. Okay, it's never so cleanly lived. And in our lifting up of those we admire, we forget, Du Bois wrote, that all that was small and mean and unpleasant, rendering the image of our forebears remote, immense, perfect, cold, and dead. Drawing on his own words, he might also have said that we remove the notion that we could become them, that the great are no greater than us. This book chooses one slice of Lincoln's life, one six-month period from July 1862 to January 1863, as the target for discovering the real Lincoln that Du Bois preferred to recognize. In this noteworthy slice of time, a hinge moment, the focus of the Civil War shifts from being about the restoration of the Union to the abolition of slavery. Loyalty to the principles of the nation begin to supersede loyalty to the states. War itself, the conduct of armies, turns to a new brutality, prefiguring the 20th century's global conflicts, and the American ideal of liberty is joined by the ideal of equality. It is also an in-between moment for Lincoln. He is not yet the revered God he would become, yet the awful responsibility that has been thrust upon him means that he is already history's object to mold. He is both racist and not He invites black leaders to the White House and tells them that the Negro has brought on this war, that whites and blacks can never coexist, and that it would be best for all if they would move someplace else, all while the Emancipation Proclamation lies in his desk drawer, a work in progress. He issues the Emancipation Proclamation, then withdraws it, resubmits it, and then offers to take it away. An agnostic, he prays for God's mercy. A constitutionalist? he suspends one of the most treasured civil liberties. A man of principle, he displays a coarse willingness to compromise. In the task of freeing men and women, he becomes a tyrant. A civilian, he masters the art of war, yet hundreds of thousands die cruel deaths under his leadership. He is Lincoln and he is human. I love Lincoln, concluded Du Bois, not because he was perfect but because he was not and yet triumphed. So that's the introduction to my my book. Um, As I told you, it begins with Lincoln riding in this carriage ride where he introduces emancipation to Seward and to uh, Wells. Um, And he, as I also mentioned, doesn't want them to interrupt his thought. He wants them to know that this is what he's planning to do, and he's planning to do it as an act of war. Now, what's happened before this carriage ride is that Lincoln has been sitting in the War Department telegraph office, How many of you saw the movie Lincoln? Do you remember these scenes in the Telegraph office where he sits around very characteristically and talks and tells stories to the clerks and was his favorite place to go? The Telegraph was as new to its time as the iPhone 6 is to ours. (laughs) Um, It had really only come out in the past couple of years before that as any kind of popular medium for uh, transmitting of messages. In fact, the White House didn't have its own telegraph operation. The secretaries either went up the street to, do, to a commercial operation or they went across the way to the War Department where Lincoln went each evening to, listen about the, to, to tap into the news of the conduct of the war. There he would pull out a piece of paper and work on the Emancipation Proclamation. Then at the end of the night, put it back in the drawer, lock up the drawer, I head back over to the White House. Now, the issues that he had to deal with in writing the Emancipation Proclamation were deep and profound. There was the constitutional question. If the slaves were considered to be property and the Constitution recognized them as property, then freeing them was, this, in a sense, a taking of personal property banned by the Constitution. The Constitution bans the taking of property without just compensation. Now, we know Lincoln wanted... Before he became president, he advocated a gradual, compensated uh, end to slavery. This is what he insisted that he would uh, only look for when he became president, that he did not want to disturb slavery in the places where it existed, only in the Western territories where he did not want it to be spread. But there he is trying to write this document. It is an emancipation document and looking for his constitutional power by which to do so. And he arrived at his power as an act of war. In other words, he would do it as commander-in-chief. He would do it as a way of undermining the enemy's operations through their, their uh, reliance upon slave labor um, and the reliance upon slaves for the economy of the South. Now, this became then the justification for the use of power but Lincoln had to be very careful in the way that he articulated that in the document. This was already an extension of the nature of war beyond the fighting of armies to the fighting against a civil society, to the undermining of the society itself, a prefiguring of war as it would, as it would take place in the 20th century. But Lincoln felt this was the only way that he, could have, that he had justification, legal justification, to uh, free the slaves. Now, The one thing we all learn in history class is the irony that Lincoln freed the slaves in the places over which he had no control, the rebellious states. And he left slavery intact in the border states in the north where he did have control. What a counterintuitive document this was. On the one hand, he's freeing people. On the other hand, he's freeing no one. Lincoln had to uh, construct the document that way if he was going to rely upon the war power as his justification for doing it because he was not at war with the border states or the North. He was only at war with the rebellious states in the South. Yet he did not have the power to free them until he conquered that territory, until the invading Union army, as an army of liberation, penetrated the South and was able to free the slaves in the process of prosecuting the war in the South. Now, this first draft of the Emancipation Proclamation is read to the Cabinet in July 1862, July 22nd. And their response is mixed. Uh, Secretary Seward says, most pointedly, we should not issue this now in the midst of one of the darkest moments for the Union Army in the summer of 1862. They'd had defeat after defeat in the Chesapeake Campaign. He says, let's wait until we've had a victory Let's wait until we can do it from a position of strength and not from a position of desperation. That point arrives in September 1862 when Lincoln, um, watching the Battle of Antietam, determines that qualified though the victory might be called, it is a victory and that he can issue this long-awaited Emancipation Proclamation at this moment. Here's this point in the the book. Antietam was certainly not the victory that Seward was thinking of back in July when he warned Lincoln to pause to put his proclamation in his pocket and to wait for a better timing for a moment when he could issue emancipation from a position of strength so that it would not appear as the last measure of an exhausted government, but as a triumphant flourish to a union surge. No matter, it was good enough to serve as the trigger for his long-awaited act. Lincoln had planned it this way, or so he claimed, almost boastfully. When Lee came over the river, I made a resolve that when McClellan drove him back, and I expected he would do it sometime or other, I would send the proclamation after him, the president told George Bootwell, the former Massachusetts governor who served under Lincoln as the nation's first commissioner of the IRS. The Battle of Antietam was fought Wednesday, and until Saturday I could not find out whether we'd gained a victory or a loss. So I fixed the proclamation up a little bit, and Monday I let them have it. But these comments here came several weeks after the fact. When he was in the moment, when he stood before the cabinet on September 22, 1862, the moment after the terrible carnage at Antietam Creek, where once again his general had let him down and told, him, told them anxiously, it would seem from all indications, that he was ready to issue an exhaustive order of emancipation, Lincoln said that it was not so much his idea as a sign from the Almighty that prompted him to comment, to commit to this new and potentially dangerous policy now. He had made a covenant with God, he told the men assembled before him. Chase and Stanton to his right, Bates, Blair, Wells, and the others to his left, none of whom was familiar with Lincoln speaking so reverently. If Lee were driven back to Virginia, he would look upon that as a sign of divine intervention, a message that God himself had decided this question in favor of the slaves. And since Lee had indeed been driven back, well, now Lincoln was ready to carry out God's wishes. Knowing the conclusion of their July meeting and knowing that reports from Antietam had indeed indicated a qualified Union victory, both Chase and Lincoln Secretary John Hilton May had been thinking that the proclamation was in its last bits of preparation, but they had no notion that the future of slavery hung on a covenant with God. Chase would not, could not believe his ears when Lincoln told him of a promise he had made to myself and to my maker. Chase asked the president to repeat himself, just to be certain there was no mistake. Had Lincoln, the religious skeptic, been transformed, enlightened by the light of the heavens? Or was this claim just another sign, there were so many in these months, that this man of character and principle was susceptible, no less than those around him, to the fear and confusion attended, that attended this searing crisis? Was he God's instrument or was God Lincoln's instrument? The president using this convenient handoff as a way of distancing himself from the awful responsibility, not only of a constitutionally suspect policy that could lead to slave riots and a deeper war, to a loss of the border states, and maybe even to a loss of the union, but of an act no mortal should think his to make. Freeing people? It was, not our, nature to, it was our nature to be free, something endowed by our creator, God could free people, but a country lawyer? He liked to think he was the attorney of the people, wrote Noah Brooks of Lincoln, not their ruler. The men were equally surprised by Lincoln's approach to the topic that morning, which began with, of all things, a humorous story. The nation had just suffered its worst day at war on top of its worst summer at war. The air throughout Virginia and Maryland perfumed with a fetid odor of death, the language strewn with fragments of innominate victims, Bereavement now the central binding national emotion. Yet Lincoln opened this first cabinet meeting after such unprecedented bloodshed, not with an expression of the commonality of grief or with the requisite gesture of memorial, but with a reading from the work of Maine humorist Charles Farrar Brown. It was hard to fathom, but Abraham Lincoln appeared to have decided on an icebreaker before announcing that four million people will be released from the claims of bondage. Gentlemen, he began, did you ever read anything from Artemis Ward? Ward was Brown's pen name and comic persona, a country bumbler who spoke the language of satire in a dialect we might associate with Mark Twain. And indeed, Twain apparently looked upon Brown as an inspiration for his own work, though the author of Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer was an infinitely better writer, evidenced interestingly by Twain's description of Brown himself when he saw him performing as Artemis Ward on stage. This is Twain's words. He looked, like a, he looked like a glove stretcher. His hair, red and brushed well forward at the sides, reminded one of a divided flame. His nose rambled on aggressively before him with all the strength and determination of a cow catcher, while his red mustache, to follow out the simile, seemed not unlike the unfortunate cow. While Ward's farcical vignettes took a run at a few sacred institutions and the Mormon church, and gently mock wilderness simplicity, most of them do not translate well across the generations, certainly not as satire, not even as humor. The story Lincoln chose that morning, high-handed outrage at Utica, was no exception. Let me read you a chapter that's very funny, said the president. Lincoln then recited Ward's inane scene of a man in Utica, a truly great city in the state of New York, who put uh, put on a display of wax figures of the Last Supper. Suddenly a burly feller walked up, grabbed Judas Iscariot and pounded him as hard as he could while demanding to know what Ward Ward had brought this pusillanimous cuss here for. (laughs) Shocked, Ward told the man that it was a mere wax figure and not the real Judas, whereupon the attacker showed that this made no difference to him, for Judas Iscariot can't show himself in Eudice with impunity by a darn sight. As I said, it doesn't travel well. Across the generations. When Lincoln finished, there was silence in the room. Seward smiled to acknowledge the humor and chase may have as well, but Stanton was particularly offended at the president's inappropriate tone and wrote about it in his diary. Then Lincoln shifted to what he said was a graver subject, what wouldn't be graver than Artemis Ward, the proclamation. So you see Lincoln's character emerging here on so many levels, but the themes that I want you to to know that are running throughout this book are Lincoln's pers- Lincoln's loss of faith and reason. He has um, become now a fatalist in part because his life has not he's, not, he's watched as his life has not followed the predictable outcomes from uh, his acts in a way that reason he felt could never betray him before this. He has been disappointed by his generals who are following a very strict West Point-trained strategy in warfare, and have discovered that this West Point-trained strategy, which comes from French theory, which comes out of the Enlightenment, doesn't deliver the results that it's supposed to deliver. Science. War is science, is the way they describe it. But the scientific outcomes are not predictable. So he's lost faith in his warriors. He's lost faith in his own acts. He's lost faith in, in the, through the pain that he suffered through his personal life he has now moved the war into a more dramatic and more aggressive form in the, in the seizing of private property that's what he's planning to do and yet here he is on the verge of making this uh, dramatic statement and he introduces it as an act of God and then follows with a joke. I want to move on now to um, the final uh, period of Lincoln's. uh, We move now to December of of 1862 to a scene early, uh, sort of late in the month um, after he's given his annual message, after the midterm elections of November, after the publication of the September 22nd Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, the one that he was reading to the cabinet uh, in the episode that I just read to you. Um, and no one is certain that while he has issued that preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, threatening to free the slaves on January 1, 1863, that he will actually go through with it. He has stopped referring to it. And the annual message, he never mentions Emancipation. Frederick Douglass has lost faith in him, believes that he's actually not going to carry it out. Some think that Lincoln had unrealistically believed that the threat, the idea that if he had told the southern states that if they did not cease their rebellion, that he would free the slaves, that they would cease it under the terms that he had presented in the preliminary uh, preliminary Emancipation Proclamation of September. So sometime in the week of of December 28, 1862, Zenith C. Robbins, a patent attorney and friend of Lincoln's, visited the president to urge him to stay the course. The chaplain of the Senate, the Reverend Byron Sunderland, whose faith in Lincoln's commitment to the proclamation had been waning, accompanied him. On the Sunday before, Sunderland had preached to his congregation at Washington's First Presbyterian Church on the subject. Ushered into the White House, they found Lincoln standing at the end of a long table in the cabinet room. With only one gaslight illuminating the scene, the president was shrouded in darkness. Robbins greeted Lincoln from the doorway and introduced Sunderland, who announced rather abruptly that he was there to address the president on the serious conditions of our country. "'Go ahead, doctor,' replied Lincoln." adding in what Sunderland took as a wry comment on his lack of height, every little bit helps. Wry it may have been, but that was more likely because Lincoln had grown tired of such unsolicited advice, particularly on this subject. Sunderland then confronted the president, saying that he had heard that Lincoln would not keep his promise, that he would miss his date with history and withdraw the proclamation. The president responded elliptically, Peter denied his master, a reference to the gospel story of the apostle Peter, who, as Jesus foretold at the Last Supper, would betray him three times before the rooster crows. The comment was clearly tailored for a man of the clergy. He thought he wouldn't, but he did betray him. Sunderland retorted that Peter did not deny Jesus until after his master had rebuked him. You have a master too, Mr. Lincoln. The American people don't deny your master until he has rebuked you before all the world. The exchange apparently impressed Lincoln, and he became more attentive to their conversation. He suggested that they sit. In an awkward spell of silence, Lincoln's gnarled hands were clasped at his forehead. Then he launched into a soliloquy in which he restated many of the perplexing questions that had stayed his hand these last six months. If it had been left to you and me, there would have been no cause for this war, he told the pastor, but it was not left to us. God has allowed men to make slaves of their fellows. He permits this war. Prefiguring a theme of his second inaugural speech, he talked of how both sides pray to the same God and how both sides believe they are right, and yet both cannot be right. He had examined the same idea in his "Meditation on the Divine will," a note found in his desk after his death, that was written in September 1862. Sounding full of despair, the president then asked, "What will come from this struggle? What would be the effect of it all on the whites and on the Negroes? Lincoln remembered a fable of Aesop's from a book he had read in his youth. Next to the story were wooden cutouts showing four white men scrubbing a Negro in a potash kettle filled with cold water. The men thought that if they scrubbed him hard, they could make him white. And so they scrubbed and scrubbed. And just about the time when they thought they were succeeding, he took cold and died. Sunderland and Robbins laughed, though likely an awkward laugh, given the pathetic nature of the scene just described to them. Before Lincoln finally interrupted to relate the story's relevance, now, gentlemen, I'm afraid that by the time we get through with this war, the Negro will catch cold and die. Lincoln's summation may have demonstrated concern that the interest of the Negro race was being overlooked in the clash between North and South, or he may even have been obliquely referring to colonization as if to say that the Negro, ill-suited for success in a post-Civil War America, could only catch cold and die without some plan to correct the error of his being brought here in the first place, unless he was to be returned to the place where he naturally belonged. But this use of the fable remains mysterious, this story, which, the story which only appears in a few editions of Aesop's, where it is titled The Blackmoor, or Washing the Ethiopian White, would seem to support multiple interpretations— The most innocuous would be a lesson in expectations that you simply can't change some things and that if you try to change them, you could sacrifice what you have. Not exactly a good omen for the impending proclamation. But the tale clearly carried appalling racist illusions too, chief among them that equality is an unreasonable ideal, that nature never intended for the races to be treated alike, and if you try to change that, you will fail. Given the times, it would be too much to expect something other than the assumption that there is no inherent beauty or goodness to being black, that the prime goal of being black should be to be white. Mm-hmm. But the fable and its progeny, many subsequent stories have been borrowing have borrowed from the same theme, go beyond that to degrade the black race. While here Lincoln recalled the story as rendered by Aesop, he had to have been aware of its usage by two of his other favorite authors. The nineteenth century English humorist Thomas Hood had a similar idea in his poem The Black Job. It too tells of a charitable effort to wash the black off. In this case, the experiment is being carried out on slaves to bring them to freedom, to see each crow or Jim or John go in a raven and come out a swan. The story was also told in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. For half an hour after his telling of the fable, Lincoln held forth with his visitors. He described the range of arguments for and against emancipation, sounding in his wisdom and his appreciation for all sides like an old prophet. The men listened intently, then departed, comforted, and uplifted, related Sunderland, and with a strong belief in Abraham Lincoln, yet they remained no more certain of his intentions regarding the Emancipation Proclamation." It was quite common for Lincoln in this time period to invite people to the White House where he would almost almost and theatrically in front of them recite both sides to the emancipation issue. He would adopt the pro-emancipation side and then he'd move to the side and adopt the anti-emancipation side. And the person who he had called in to sit there was not asked for his advice or his opinion, but merely to be there in order to change the dynamic in the room so he could hear himself and hear the logic coming forth and decide whether he favored one side or the other. Very common for Lincoln. One last scene. This takes us to the end of the book and to the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. Along with making the final edits on the proclamation, Lincoln spent New Year's Eve day occupied with other executive business, and there was plenty. He signed a bill admitting 48 counties of western Virginia into the Union as West Virginia, but as part of the agreement, the new state had to adopt a plan for gradual emancipation. Lincoln prepared to meet his top general, Ambrose Burnside, knowing that he would have to tell him that he had lost confidence in him, that junior officers from Burnside's staff had come to complain about him, and he was ready to request that... Halleck personally view all of Burnside's future plans. Lincoln came to an agreement with the entrepreneur Bernard Koch for the resettlement of 5,000 former slaves on the coast of Haiti, no matter what he would do by morning. Lincoln had not given up on colonization. He also met with, Lincoln's own words, a piteous old lady of genteel appearance who had been evicted from her home by the War Department and had no place to go. Lincoln dashed off a note to Secretary of War Stanton asking him to look into the matter. Then, as night fell fell on the streets of Washington, Lincoln went to his study and paced. Robert Lincoln later told a friend that his father stayed up this entire night. Why the younger Lincoln waited decades to reveal that tantalizing fact is unknown, but if true, what a cinematic scene it suggests especially from the vantage point of 150 years of history. There is Lincoln, our mythic Lincoln, whoever that Lincoln may really be, alone in his cold, dark study in what was likely the first time in a long time when he could permit himself the luxury of concentration. While we do not know for certain about this particular night, Tad usually fell asleep in his father's study, and eventually Lincoln would pick up the boy and carry him to bed. But once Lincoln was alone and settled into the enveloping silence, What went through his mind? Robert Lincoln said his mother, before her retiring, repeated her opposition to the proclamation, but even even then, Lincoln, in reply, had not revealed his intentions. He simply paced, pausing once in a while to read a few favorite verses from the Bible and to gaze through the White House window at the night sky. The six months preceding this had been transformative for him. He had built a career on reason and argument on the powers of human agency to effect change. His entire life was an example of that Enlightenment creed, a self-educated backwoodsman of questionable birth whose literary, oratorical, and political labors brought him to the greatest of heights. Yet the awful war and the exasperating task of ending slavery had reawakened in him a humbling respect for the unreasonable, for what he did not know, and for what he could not know. It was uncanny, The same sort of personal epiphany had occurred around all the challenges in his life. He had trusted the war to men who plotted the movements of troops and artillery with slide rules and diagrams, yet they had failed. And now, in light of their failure, he leaned toward a more muscular, less cerebral war, one that permitted any act deemed to be of military necessity. He believed in a gradual, peaceful, and compensated path to the extinction of slavery, one that took into account the interest of both slaveholders and slaves that rejected the riskiness of sudden emancipation with its harsh rebuke and potential for violence. Yet here he was, hours from freeing the slaves, not by the construction of some deliberate and measured plan vetted by the legislative process, but by presidential fiat announced from the barrel of a gun. An attorney, he had believed firmly in the law as the governing force of a just society, yet he had stretched the boundaries of the Constitution, first in suspending civil liberties and now in the document that awaited his signature, the seizing of private property without statutory authority. Yes, it was an act of war, and yes, this property was different in that it breathed the air and walked the earth, was property in people, not things. But there remained the question whether Lincoln was interpreting the law to serve the outcome he wanted, rather than for what the law said ironically for someone accused of such bold-faced grab for power lincoln had privately moved increasingly toward a submission to the will of something greater than himself the idea was by no means new for him indeed it recalled his 1848 profession of youthful interest in the doctrine of necessity which asserted that there was no free will that one's actions were directed by some exterior force and the fulfillment of an eternal yet essentially unknowable design Lincoln's philosophy, wrote his law partner, William Herndon, was the source of his legendary grace and humility. For if men are, quote, mere tools in the hands of fate made as they are by conditions, then to praise them or blame them was pure folly. This was a philosophy that stressed equality. Ironically, the president, upon whom so many great man theories of American history depend, saw himself as no different from anyone else. No one was less or more responsible for the conditions of the world than the next person because all were helpless to change. All were helpless to change events as they were directed from above. When Mary and Robert arrived in Lincoln's study in the morning asking what he had decided, the president looked up at them, a great light illumining his face. He answered, I am a man under orders. I cannot do otherwise. Thank you very much. take any questions, if anyone has questions, or comments, if you prefer. Yes?
2: Yeah, um, I suppose
1: just talking, okay. I think you probably can oh, okay. bellow it out, I'll repeat it if you, what's your name first? Uh, Lewis. Lewis, hello uh, Lewis. I want to make a statement and a question. Okay.
2: The first statement, um, that, um, I, I like Tom Hanks a lot, and he claims to be descended from, uh, Hanks, uh, you know, the lady, the, the mother.
1: Oh, is that right? I didn't realize that. His
2: integrity and his movements—you could see he could, you know, has a lot of Lincoln. That's that's
1: the Let me give you a side about about Tom Hanks, which is that years ago, before I had gray hair, I guess you could say, people used to think that I looked a lot like Tom Hanks. And I was standing on a subway platform. This is um, I don't know, the late '80s, the early '90s, something like that. And this woman comes up to me, and she's looking at me, and she's looking at me, and she's looking at me. And finally, she comes up, and she says. I loved you in the movie Big. And she said, will you sign this? And I just couldn't let her down, so I signed Tom Hanks and gave it to her. <laughs> Sorry, so go ahead. Yeah.
2: Okay, the question is, <clears throat> I'm a history major in college, and uh-huh. I've covered a lot of special generals and famous people in history. But... um. I didn't
1: hear the part where he blamed blacks for the for the war. You said that's true. Right? Uh, well, what he says is, but for he so in in late July, I'm sorry, late August, 1862, he he invites a group of black leaders to the White House in order to encourage them to lead a movement out of the country and colonize uh, the free blacks away. Uh, in this case, it was to Panama, but there have also been movements to Africa and other places. And uh, in the course of addressing them. He says, but for you people, there would be no war. Now, Frederick Douglass, who a brilliant, brilliant um, figure of the time, uh, I'm sure you all know who Frederick Douglass was, uh, reaction was, how dare he do this? Because as he equated it was was like blaming the horse owner for the horse thief uh, raiding the barn. Now, I'm of two minds of it, listening to that phrase. I think he could have meant, and this is a very sympathetic interpretation, but for the arrival and the the slave trade that brought uh, African slaves to America in slavery, there would have been no war. But at the very least, it was insensitive to the the moment, uh, inconsistent with what he was planning at the time, and cynical towards the notion of a biracial America. Um, so, it certainly is interpreted in the moment as saying that you are the reason for this war. I think you could interpret it another way if you look at just at the language, but of course, Frederick Douglass was probably more close to the context, certainly, than, than I am or any of us can be at this moment. But the emotion, the, the, um, the hubris of inviting these leaders to tell them that they should, that they could never, uh, that there would never be harmony in a post-Civil War America that they would always be unequal. You know, Lincoln did not believe in equality. He believed in ending slavery, but he did not believe in equality. He may have started the conversation on equality, which brought us to the 14th Amendment and brought us to where we are today, where we're still arguing over equality, but he did not believe in equality. And he was pessimistic about the possibilities for biracial America, I think in part, because of his, this kind of racist vision of a hierarchy of races, but also because he felt that the history of slavery would never allow black and white to get along together. There'd be so much bitterness on the part of those who had been held in, sla- in slavery uh, to allow for the kind of harmony that was necessary for a society to, to go forward in a biracial uh, construction. Yes. <coughs>
2: On the same point, in Harold Holzer's book, Emancipating Lincoln, he defends Lincoln uh, by saying, there was a report of That's how we know yes. what Lincoln said. And Lincoln was making the statement to the white public so that the Emancipation
1: Proclamation would go down easier with them. Uh, he was playing politics in yeah. other words. But, you know, um, and this is a real problem with Lincoln scholarship, and it's really been a real problem with any writing about Lincoln from day one after Lincoln died, that people read back into the stories what they want to see about someone. I'm not saying that we have to look at it this way, but I do think that it's just as questionable. Well, all the source material on Lincoln is dubious, I mean, yes, a reporter was there who then recorded that and wrote about it, and then the outrage from Douglas happens from him when he reads the report, perhaps also with consulting some of the black leaders who are actually there i don 't know so many recollections of what happened in eighteen sixty two are on such a fragile piece of evidence that we can reconstruct and rethink and point point the the, the the light in a different direction to any interpretation we really want. Uh, I'll give you another example. One of the prime sources for the story of the Emancipation Proclamation is an artist named Francis Bichtel Carpenter. He painted a painting called The First Reading of the Emancipation Proclamation. He was a huge fan of Lincoln's. He approached him on a a, a, uh, receiving line and said, I want to paint this painting. The painting now hangs in the Capitol, by the way. Uh, uh, and, and Lincoln invited him to move into the White House for six months and as you know for historical paintings then what they would do is they would have the people in the painting come and sit for portraits and they'd sort of assemble the portraits together and so he did this over six months living in the White House then after the war was over wrote a book about it and recalled what his conversations were with Lincoln and that is one of the main reasons why we believe that Lincoln, I think I discussed in here in the introduction, the notion that Lincoln uh, was waiting for the exact right moment to issue the Emancipation Proclamation, similar to what Harold Holzer is saying there in that book, about, you know, he was preparing the white America for what was going to be something they couldn't have accepted in 1861, but maybe could accept by 1863. Lincoln says something of that nature to Carpenter, according to Carpenter, who was not a reporter, not an historian, who did not take notes, who was an artist, a huge fan of Lincoln's, and Lincoln is speaking to him after the fact and reading back himself into what had happened in the history. So we don't really know. You know, that's such flimsy. But I think we can just take all these shards and I think we essentially have to believe that I and the point of view of this book is that he was a man, he had a lot of conflicting ideas moving around his head at the time. He was dealing with a war that was tearing the country apart. He was living in a time when racial attitudes were very hierarchical, where scientific racism was being propounded by many, many people. And it wouldn't surprise me if he erred on the wrong side of the equation many times during these six months when he's moving towards what is the most dramatic decision really in his presidency, one that could have led to a complete collapse of the country. It could have led to the border states leaving and joining the South. It could have led to a servile insurrection between the slaves and the slaveholders with the slaveholders trying to, I'm sorry, the slaves trying, former slaves trying to kill the former slaveholders or the slaveholders trying to kill off the freed, now freed slaves. Anything could have happened, right? An incredibly tumultuous moment. But I do appreciate that, that thought. And Harold Holzer's has written a lot of wonderful books about it. Yes, you here, sir.
0: How might things have changed um, saying the evolution of the proclamation, had his cabinet endorsed it in July of 1862 and others? Yeah.
1: Well, they, they, they did endorse it. Um, I, uh, they were lukewarm about it. Uh, the chief uh, message he took from it was this one from Seward that said, um, hold off until a, a moment of Union victory, which comes, by the way, from Carpenter. But is repeated by many other people. Um, I think, of course, we would have had the chance that he would have issued it earlier, right? And I will say this: that the process of the cabinet being lukewarm about the Emancipation Proclamation the first time, and then introducing edits and re- rephrasing.
0: Did he arrive at a better version? Of what yes, he
1: did. He did. And he arrived at a better version through several important elements. In the
0: like Lincoln to, to need a, a need an editor? Kind of thing to need be- an
1: antagonist? Well, as I said, he almost set up his own antagonist. And if, when I can tell, because so many times when he introduced this to the cabinet, even when he introduces it to them in September 1862 and reads it to them, he says again, "I'm not here to ask you for your advice. I'm just telling you I'm going to do this." So it, it, there's a little bit of this quality of don't don't interfere with me which has, to me, a little bit of the feeling that maybe he was so insecure about the decision that he felt he could be swayed the wrong way if he, if he allowed himself the opening for criticism. But let me tell you just the key elements that changed over the course of the three drafts of the Emancipation Proclamation. The first one was rather open and kind of crude, in, the, in a kind of crudely drafted, I would say. The Seward says, leave it till later because we want to work from a position of strength. He also says, we should not only recognize the freedom, we should say we will maintain the freedom, which was a key word because, as you may know, early in the war, the Union Army respected respected the fugitive slave laws and if a slave uh, broke free and came to the Union Army uh, asking for refuge, they would return him to the slaveholder. Then, with the Confiscation Act of 1862, that changed, and they no longer were doing it. But the point was, not only would they recognize, but they would also defend the freedom of the freed slaves, right? The, in the final version, there's another element that's introduced, which is that the freed slaves are encouraged to enlist in the Union Army. So we have the encouragement of the freed slaves Now, joining the Union Army, and those of you who know the history of the war will know that 180,000, some say 200,000, black soldiers arrive in the Union Army in the last couple of years of the war, most of them freed slaves, and they are an energizing force to the Union Army in the last battles of the war, serve with distinction. You've seen some of the the film, I think it was Glory, yeah. Um, And they are a really, really important part of the, the fighting force, because they, and this was something that the South had really feared, you know, that uh, this notion of a servile insurrection. Well, now they're coming, the former slaves are coming back with Union, arms, union uh, uniforms on, blue uniforms, returning to the places where they were enslaved. Can you imagine? And then the other thing he adds, uh, you know, all through this, all through, he's been very careful not to introduce the main reason for doing the Emancipation Proclamation, which is because it's the right thing to do, right? And not introducing any language, as I mentioned, being that had any poetry or anything attached to it, because this was supposed to be a legal document as an act of war. But in the very last line, he says, the encouragement of Chase, Secretary of Treasury Chase, he he writes in the final version, and upon this act, sincerely believed to be an act of justice, never said that before warranted by the constitution upon military necessity so reinforcing his constitutional justification i invoke the considerate judgment of mankind and the gracious favor of almighty god now no contract i've ever read has any of that kind of language in it so he has actually changed it right here Yes. I missed the beginning of your talk. But uh-huh. I was
2: listening. Uh, Mitch Jeserich had an interview with this Ed Baptiste, a professor at Cornell, who's written a book, something like The Unwritten History of Capitalism and Slavery. Huh. He was talking about Lehman Brothers made a lot of their money selling bonds, financing the cotton business in Alabama Mississippi. Huh. and Mississippi. Uh, and I'm just curious, I know Grant. Economic aspects, people selling goods to the Confederacy. There was, oh, just the financial aspect. Did, did, well, how did this come into play? Because they were this,
1: uh... yeah, I'm afraid this is something I don't know much about. I mean, it doesn't surprise me, um, and it sounds like a very interesting book. But I, uh, I, I don't know the answer to that. It wasn't part of. The book is really more about what's in Lincoln's mind and then these six months. And I'm, but I it sounds like a worthy subject for a book yes I thought you raised an interesting point when you talked about the primary sources and how yeah. continuous they all are so I was just wondering what were your main primary sources yeah uh, well uh, you know Lincoln is such a fascination for so many people the internet is just filled with tons and tons of stuff and the original you know the um, Uh, The the collected works of Lincoln, including all his letters, all his speeches and everything, are all available online, searchable online. It's fabulous. There's also written not too long ago something called The the Recollected Words of Abraham Lincoln uh, by a historian named Ferenbacher where he goes through and he grades uh, the chances for truth on every phrase that has supposedly been said by Abraham Lincoln, and he grades them A through D. And so you can actually go to him and sort of get a sense of the chances for the veracity of what it is you're looking at. Um, there are, are 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 biographies written immediately after the war that are that are uh, that are um, suspect because they are written to you know there there were uh, books written to confirm Lincoln's Christianity in ways that just invent all kinds of. Um, uh, scenes of him praying and, and, and just these really didn't happen. That's the best judgment of the scholarship is that it didn't happen. Um, where I could rely upon an original source, meaning Lincoln's recollected words, you know, as the, his letters and things, I used those. Where I could use um, uh, histories that were written that seemed to have some chance of truth I relied upon those. I tried either where I had some question about it, either to insert that into the text or insert that into the, the end notes that company was extensive end notes for this book. Um, when I rely upon Carpenter, I rely upon him, but I also introduced him earlier in the book and I say, you know, we get we a lot of what we get from, um, uh, about Lincoln from this, this particular period from Carpenter, but he is somewhat of a dubious source. And then when I reference him again, I say, again, remembering he's a somewhat of a dubious source. Uh, even the story of Lincoln sitting in the uh, telegraph office, um, wonderful, charming story written by this man named Homer Bates, but it takes him 50 years after his experience before he writes the book, and so you have to wonder, number one, why did he take 50 years to write it? Number two, I couldn't remember anything for 50 years, so I can't imagine that he did that with that kind of clarity. On the other hand, it may be our only source, So, which I my, my believe you introduce the sources that you can have the best Respect for, but also, and you rely somewhat on those that may be dubious, but you let the reader know, and and you cope as best you can. I mean, um, this tells you though how fragile and kind of pasted together history is, you know. Yes. Okay, I only recently watched the movie Lincoln that you referred to, and I don't know
2: how
0: accurate Hal Holbrook's portrayal of him was, but I found him to be somewhat of a buffoon.
1: you're talking about Blair now. That, was, that, was he Blair? Was he who he was? Or who was, who was Hal Holbrook portray, portraying a truck? No, not Hal Holbrook. It was
2: uh, yeah, okay. well,
0: Daniel
1: it was Daniel Day Lewis. Where they, they, had
0: a, they had a. No, this was Hal Holbrook. This was made in the 70s. And
1: oh, oh it's a completely different movie. I'm sorry.
0: But he did an excellent version of Lincoln. It was
1: Hal Holbrook did. Yeah, it oh, okay. It scene where he was in the, the office waiting for the telegram and stuff. But what I'm wondering is, okay, I guess I'm just a little disillusioned because I always thought of Lincoln as, you know, this great American hero and, you know, you're kind of, I guess my perception of him now is more like, like you you mentioned, lukewarm and it it almost seems like, well, you know, he wrote the Emancipation Proclamation but he wasn't really sure about it and, you know, and it's like all these sort of differences that, that, you know, they don't teach you about
0: when you learn about Abraham Lincoln. Yeah,
1: I mean, See, I have a different reaction to it. I, I, feel, I feel when heroes are painted as these great grand figures who never make mistakes, then they're probably not faithful to the truth, you know. And I don't mean that in a sort of, well, they're not so great. I think, I think Lincoln was great. I mean, he was great in a very flawed way, the way that Du Bois says in that, in, when I referenced the introduction. I mean, he. look, he made mistakes, he fell, he got up again, Uh, He made mistakes of judgment. I'll tell you another one about going back to the um, different versions of the Emancipation Proclamation. At one point, Lincoln inserts this line that says, and the freedom, I I don't know exactly, the freedom shall last during the term of the present incumbent. And Chase and Seward go, what? I mean, the the term of the present incumbent meaning I mean, the freedom will last during while we, you're president, and then when it's over, you, they go back to slavery, and and Lincoln gives this toss-off where he says, "Well, I don't care how we phrase it," and so Chase goes over, and, or story goes over and scribbles it out. You actually see this in the in some of the versions of it where they've actually done some scribbling and editing. Now, I, I don't think any less of him for being human in this way, though that he had he had fears, he made bad judgments, he was he was. Trying, uh, he, you know, he, he was a trying time for him, a trying time for the country. He was acting in this extra constitutional way, a guy who was a lawyer and faithful to the law. And he was in the act of freeing, of ending slavery, something he had spoken about for so long. And yet he didn't have the faith in racial harmony to believe that we could coexist together in a post Civil War world. Yet he finally, after stumbling, getting up, reissuing it, denying it, there was a moment in the in, in, in these these uh, ministers come to visit him from Chicago in the early September of 1862, and they say, "We've come to see you because we think you're slow on emancipation. We want you to get to it." And he says, "Why would I issue emancipation? What a foolish thing that would be to do!" And he goes through all the reasons why it would be a stupid thing to do. Now. As he's saying that, he's got the document in his drawer, so I, I you have to believe that he's just he is struggling. I believe in all the, these these months, and when he finally acts, he does act. He does it finally, and to me, there's greatness in his humanity and in his ultimate earnestness to not to, to get up off the floor and go back at it, and then finally sign the document even with all his fears. Two more questions? Sure. Yes, sir. Yes, I enjoyed your, your talk. Thank uh, you.
2: Last spring, I was preparing to talk on Douglas Du Bois and the Color Line, and uh, I had a link it in there, so at the last minute I decided to go to uh, a mainstream book, uh-huh. uh, the L volume in the uh, World Book Encyclopedia, <laughs> 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 which is a... To make a long story short, and read up on Lincoln because I anticipated some questions. I saw that there were Lincoln. Some people are probably familiar with this. In 1862, I believe, also signed for people out in the western territories to receive yeah. about 150 acres. I guess yeah. they were trying to get
1: the homesteading. Yes. Yeah.
2: Move west. Yeah. Free land at the same time. I'm thinking the issue of property. Yeah. And the issue of slavery and the legacy that sort of followed. Black people down, really, the legacy is not being able to be moved from property to citizens so you could accumulate wealth. Mm -hmm. And I guess the question I'm trying to phrase why couldn't Lincoln break through that?
1: Break the issue. Break through the issue of. uh, I'm not quite sure. In
2: in the the area of freedom. Yeah. Because by keeping black folks still largely defined as property. Yes. The poverty legacy
1: of yes. each generation uh-huh. of black people. Uh-huh.
2: That's what I'm trying to get at. So they were property but and he couldn't buy
1: property. Yeah. So, well, they were property until the 13th Amendment made them not property, right? And I think he always had the 13th Amendment in the back of his mind as a necess- necessary next step in order to preserve what he was doing with the proclamation. I don't know if I'm answering your question. As the western
2: states became populated, they were going to be uh, free states. That's what the South was worried about, anyway. And those people who moved out there, they were able. Some of them probably lost. I understand that, but many of them were able to take that 150
1: acres and accumulate.
2: Move from liquidity to wealth and pass it yeah. down generationally across lines.
1: But I, I, I'm still unclear what your question is. is My that?
2: question is, why can Lincoln rise up? Mm-hmm. Douglas takes him to task on this in this great tribute yeah. Yeah. in 1876. Right. That, that for all of Lincoln's greatness, yes, he couldn't seem to move yes. to the next level.
1: Well, I'll come back to what I said to this woman over here that. Um, I think to expect too much of one person is probably uh, not the healthiest approach to history. Uh, and I guess if there's any lesson, I think, from the book that I've written, it is to understand that uh, there's, hum- there's humanity at the basis of all, flawed humanity at the basis of all these decisions. And when we sit around waiting for heroes to arrive to carry forth on good principles, I think we will have a long wait. Um, when, when we feel disappointed that the great are not greater, I think we don't do them or ourselves a service. Um, at least that's the point of view that I, I, I've i carried forward here. We have time kind for of one more, I guess, right? Yes.
0: You talked about the different versions of this. Was it all on one piece of paper and just
1: crossed? <laughs> it? Uh, not quite, although there is... Um, he does this wonderful cut and paste thing, which you can see, I have, I have the, the actual autograph version in the back of the book where he, he sort of tapes the thing together and, and uh, uh, because he didn't want to go to the trouble of writing it again. <laughs> writing it again. Um, uh, there's also this wonderful, sort of somewhat charming moment in the, um, at the end when he's waiting to sign it on New Year's Day and, and it's brought to him in this grand you know, um, uh, manuscript form and he notices that the salutation at the end is a salutation usually used for, I forget, something other than a presidential proclamation. So as he's getting ready to sign it, he sends it back to be redone. And um, because he does that, there's this long delay about whether he signed it or not. And there are parties that have been formed in New York and Boston and Philadelphia and everywhere, Baltimore probably, that are waiting for the word from from Washington that he signed this. And it goes on and on. And it's all because he sent it back to be redone. And then somebody in the printing office has the wise idea that, hey, if I run out with this nearly perfect version, you know, uh, the discarded one, and I give it to the newspapers, they're going to really love me for this. So he, he does, and the telegraph starts coming over, The Warren says, oh, he's, he's signed it, and he actually had not signed it yet. You're still waiting for the, fresh, for the ink to, to dry on the one that actually had the right salutation on it. Of course, it was already a done deal, and the parties carried forth, and there was great enthusiasm, and um, Frederick Douglass, who went up to the last moment believing he was still going to pull the plug on it and not be courageous, um, finally was able to say that it had indeed been signed and it changed the war going forward. Thank you all again. I really enjoyed coming here.